Alternative Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. In June 1939, the Flake family, who were originally from Marshall, Texas, bought a house in the 900 block of East Annie Street in Fort Worth, Texas. On June 19, 1939, Juneteenth, a mob numbering near 500 destroyed their home. Why? They were black and had been audacious enough to move into a mostly white area of the North Texas city. That day should have been a day of celebration for the Flake family. 74 years earlier, in the island city of Galveston, Union troops, many of them being black men serving with the United States colored troops, brought news of freedom to the enslaved people of Texas. It was a momentous occasion and word of freedom spread from the coast of Texas and spider-webbed its way out and across the countryside to at least 250,000 people held in bondage in the state. General Order Number 3 contained the phrase, The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. But the freed men and freed women and their descendants did not receive absolute equality in reality. The rebels and their descendants, using violence, intimidation, and law, placed a number of barriers and hurdles between them and this term, absolute equality. But having endured for hundreds of years in slavery, the freed people and their descendants persevered and fought for years more as the state and nation continued to evolve towards this noble goal. Eighty-two years after the Juneteenth riot and destruction of the Flake family's home in Fort Worth, and 156 years after the first Juneteenth, a woman named Opal Lee was present in Washington, D.C. when President Joe Biden signed the act passed by Congress making Juneteenth a national holiday. She was 94 years old, but she'd just been 12 when her house had been destroyed on Juneteenth, 1939. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. This is Michael, and in this episode... We're going to attempt to share the story of Juneteenth and show the power of perseverance. Now, right up front, I want to state clearly that I am indebted to Judge Ken Wise and his podcast, Wise About Texas, for the interviews with Edward T. Cotham and Sam Collins III that he conducted for Juneteenth of 2021. And I'm indebted to J.R. Shaw and his podcast, Galveston Unscripted for the interview he did with Sam Collins III. These episodes and the words and work of Mr. Cotham and Mr. Collins gave me many directions to learn and inspired me to learn more. 
And that's what Texas History Lessons is. It's just me going back through the history of Texas, resharing things I already knew and learning more about it, and finding stories that I'd never heard before and sharing them as well. But first, let's take a step back in the typical way that I do here with Texas History Lessons and get some background information for context. First, Galveston, the site of the first reading of the proclamation declaring Texas's slaves' freedom, takes great pride in being the place that this happened. And they should take pride in that. And I love Galveston, but the island also shares in a deeper, darker part of the history of slavery in the United States and Texas. We are taught, and no doubt you have heard a lot about the year 1619 and its significance in the history of slavery. And it is an important turning point, but slavery in America goes back more. Slavery in the Americas began much earlier than this. It began with enslavement of indigenous populations. The importation of African slaves actually resulted at the suggestion of a man named Bernardo de las Casas, in part. Now, Las Casas had been a participant and a beneficiary of Spain's encomienda system, in which he benefited from the slavery of indigenous people. But at some point, he had a great awakening as he witnessed the violence and horror that was happening. And he became a defender of the human rights of the first peoples in the Americas. Sadly, it was Las Casas who was among those who suggested the use of African men and women as slaves to replace the lost labor of the declining native population. And I've read that he later regretted this, but regret came too late. The addiction to wealth and power was too strong. And as we know, black slavery lasted in the United States of America until 1865. The first non-native enslaved person from Africa, or persons, I should say, in what would be the United States someday, arrived with Ponce de Leon in Florida in 1513. In fact, it is important to make a point here that slavery of people of Africa was not the first form of enslavement of Europeans practiced in the Americas, as I was just talking about. They began by enslaving the indigenous people, the first peoples, and that subject is extremely important, and we will be getting into it soon in the Lessons episodes of Texas History Lessons. Until then, I recommend that you check out the important book, The Other Slavery, by Andres Resendez. It's a significant part of the history of Texas and of all the Americas. The first known enslaved person from Africa to arrive in Texas arrived near Galveston in 1528. His name was Mustafa Azenmuri, but you probably know of him by another name, Estavanico. Now, Mustafa was born a Muslim in northern Africa, was later captured and enslaved by the Portuguese around 1521. He was then sold to a member of the Narvaez expedition that we are close to talking about in the lessons episodes. 
a man named Andre Dorantes de Carranza. Now, Mustafa's name more than likely was changed at his baptism, either by choice or by force, because being a non-Christian was illegal in Spain, and non-Christians were not allowed to participate in expeditions to the New World, from what I understand. So Mustafa, Stephen, little Stephen, or let's just go with Estavanico, played an important part in the survival of the four people that made it to Mexico City eight years later. And he later played a significant role in the Coronado expedition, searching for cities of gold. We are very close to some episodes about his life and adventures. There are a lot of things to say about his experiences, and we'll get to them soon. Slavery became entrenched in the United States, especially with the development of the Southern Plantation System and a cotton-based economy, while France, England, and other nations were already making moves towards the abolition of slavery. The United States kept it legal, but they did outlaw the international slave trade in 1808. This meant that you could not bring people from across the sea or from other nations into the United States and sell them to be used as servants in bondage. But as usual, greedy people found ways to circumvent the law. After helping Andrew Jackson defeat the British at the Battle of New Orleans, pirates John Lafitte and his brother relocated their operations to the coast of Texas at what is now Galveston. They established a settlement called Campeche as their base, and it became the center of their thriving illicit trade. Part of this illicit trade was the sale of enslaved people. Little Feet's ships would capture slave ships and bring the men and women to Campeche. They then sold them to United States agents who snuck the people into the United States and used trickery to profit off of their misery. Alamo hero Jim Bowie and his brothers Resin P. Bowie and John J. Bowie were the Lafitte's most famous customers. The Bowie's purchased slaves from Lafitte for a dollar a pound. And this came to an average of $140 per slave. Jim and his brothers would then take these human beings across the Sabine River to Louisiana, and there they worked the system to their benefit. Now remember, the international slave trade was outlawed. The Bowie's took these people to Louisiana's custom houses and turned them in. And Louisiana law allowed for the sale of confiscated property. Half of the sale price would then be granted to the person who brought the confiscated property or informed on it. In the Bowie's case, the confiscated property were living, breathing, flesh and blood men and women. The Bowie's had a pretty neat money-making scheme with this practice. They would then buy the slaves and receive half the money they spent back as their fee for bringing the people to the customs house. They would then sell them to planters in Louisiana and Mississippi, and at times they received up to $1,000 per person. The brothers made up to $65,000 in the three years they did business with the Lafitte's. That's about $2 million today. The practice ended after the United States forced Lafitte to leave Galveston in 1821, 
the same year that Austin received permission to settle 300 families. Until 1821, aside from Lafitte's slave trade and some small slave holdings in the area of Nacogdoches, there had been some in San Antonio and La Bahia, um, slavery never gained a significant foothold in Texas under Spanish rule. The arrival of Austin and his old 300 changed this, though. Austin recognized that the rich soil and the ability to ship cotton from the Gulf Coast would attract cotton farmers from the east, people who he knew wouldn't work the land themselves for the most part. And this meant that slavery would be in Texas to fulfill his and others' dreams, even if Mexico outlawed the evil practice. They found ways to circumvent this with long terms of endangered servitude. Austin's alliance with Mexico eventually faltered and led to the Texas Revolution. And then after years of struggle as an independent nation, the circumstances in the United States finally got right and Texas became a state, only to secede to become a member of the Confederate States of America 15 years later and send soldiers to fight in the Civil War, where as many as 750,000 soldiers died during the war. And among them were some of the more than 70,000 Texans that fought for the Confederacy and the more than 2,000 that fought for the Union. By 1846, the slave population of Texas was about 30,000. By 1850, it had grown to 50,000, thereabouts. And in 1860, it was over 180,000 enslaved people in Texas. And after the beginning of the United States Civil War, the slave population of Texas grew to between 250,000 and 350,000 people as slaveholders brought their slaves west into Texas where they thought they could keep them safe from being freed by the Union. Now, we're going to learn a lot more about this subject matter. It's a lot more complex, a lot going on here. We're going to learn about it in closer detail in the future. But if you are curious, I recommend checking out Randolph B. Campbell's An Empire for Slavery, The Peculiar Institution, 1821-1865, John B. Bowles's Black Southerners, 1619-1861, Alwyn Barr's The African Texans, and last but not least, Andrew J. Torgett's Seeds of Empire, Cotton, Slavery, and the Transformation of the Texas Borderlands, 1800-1850, which won the David J. Weber Clements Center Prize for Best Nonfiction Book on Southwestern America from the Western History Association. Now, I'm going to trust that most of you are familiar with the Civil War and why it was fought. I'm not diminishing its importance by not talking about it here, but I'm going to just trust that while there are a lot of complicated things that we could bring up, the issue of slavery was pretty significant, to say the least. When the war began, Lincoln's main reason for fighting was to preserve the Union. After the Southern states seceded over a number of issues, number one being that they were afraid that Lincoln would try to abolish their beloved peculiar institution and take their rights to property away. Peculiar institution and property are in quotes when I wrote this. 
Of course, I'm talking about slavery and human beings being forced into servitude that the South did not want to lose. And for some of you out there, you know who you are. Please respect my intelligence to know that, yes, I understand that there were many complicated issues and arguments going on back then, and I respect you enough to think that you understand what I'm talking about. Slavery was key to the breakdown of the Union, and as the war progressed, it indeed became even more significant when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. It's a waste of time and energy to fight about why the Civil War occurred, so let's move on. The Emancipation Proclamation changed the legal status of more than 3.5 million enslaved human beings in the Confederate States, making them free under federal law. If a person that was enslaved escaped the control of the Confederacy by running across Union lines, or as the Union troops advanced, he or she was legally free. It wasn't a secret to white Texans that this had been established by Lincoln, but it wasn't passed around to the 250,000 or more people held in bondage in the state. The Emancipation Proclamation was also especially significant because Lincoln issued it in his role as president, the head of the executive branch of government, and the commander-in-chief of the United States military. The proclamation essentially charged the United States Army with recognizing and maintaining the freedom of slaves as they took over areas during the war. But this happened in January of 1863 for the hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children in Texas for whom freedom was just a word, a hope, or a dream. The really important day would be on June 19th, 1865. The 250,000 or more enslaved people in Texas never heard of the Emancipation Proclamation until then. Most likely, as scholars and historians and people that just kind of get it, realize because those in power suppressed the news. Spreading that news could cause problems for them. General Gordon Granger was given command of the Texas District, and he headed to Galveston Island with a few thousand federal troops, including detachments of the Illinois Colored Infantry. And it's said that Union General Gordon Granger was a blunt man. And he served with his distinction during the Civil War. He had fought at the Battle of Chickamauga, Siege of Knoxville. But superiors like Grant did not appreciate Granger's blunt way of stating his opinion and kept him from getting more esteemed commands in the East. He was sent to the Gulf where he provided land support to Admiral David Farragut. He commanded the land forces that captured Fort Gaines and Morgan during the Battle of Mobile Bay, and he then commanded the forces when the city of Mobile, Alabama, fell to the Union. And so he was sent after Lee's surrender to Galveston, and he landed there on June 18, 1865, and established Union Army headquarters at the Osterman Building that stood at the corner of the Strand and 22nd Street in Galveston. Galveston was the biggest city in Texas at the time and the major center for shipping cotton out of Texas with its deep water port. It had been especially significant for the South during the war. Now, the military had already encountered problems with emancipating slaves as they entered into conquered territory. There had been little to no planning on how to deal with the aftermath and it caused problems. 
to help deal with the situation and to help deal with Granger and his blunt manner that might cause problems when he's in Texas dealing with Texas officials. The aggressive General Philip Sheridan, commander of the Military District of the Southwest, sent general orders to establish the mission and conduct of the military. And one of these orders was General Order Number 3 that dealt with emancipation. So when Granger arrived in Galveston, he brought with them the orders, and then they were rewritten out and signed by him there. As an interesting side note, among the troops Granger brought with him was a gentleman named William Henry Costley. Costley was black, but he had been free most of his life thanks to the efforts of his mother, Nance or Nancy Leggins Costley, a black woman in Illinois that had been freed with the assistance of a lawyer named Abraham Lincoln in the early 1840s when William Henry Costley was a baby. Now, of course, you know, Lincoln was opposed to slavery even then, but he was not in any way a radical abolitionist. But this event did help Lincoln shape his arguments against slavery over 20 years before he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. William Costley joined the 29th Illinois Regiment of U.S. Colored Troops in 1864, was wounded in battle. He joined when he was 23 years old, and he was present on June 19, 1865, when Granger issued the general order sent with him by General Sheridan. Along with the general orders and the troops like Mr. Costley, General Granger also brought with him an interesting man named Major Frederick W. Emery, who is a very important part of the Juneteenth story. While Lincoln might not have been a radical abolitionist, it's pretty safe to say that Major Emory was, having been associated with John Brown's sons and actively promoted abolition. He was passionate about the issue, and it's believed that he's responsible to a very important change of wording that showed up in Texas's General Order Number 3. So this brings us to Monday, June 19th, 1865. Granger sets up base in Galveston on the day before, and then on the 19th, he issued five general orders that established his authority over Texas and laid out the priorities of his command. General Orders Number 1 and 2, established Granger's authority over all the Union forces in Texas and named the department heads that would oversee various responsibilities, while General Order Number 4 declared illegal all laws and actions of the state government of Texas since secession, and General Order Number 5 established the Army's Quartermaster Department as the only buyer for cotton until other officials could set up shop. All exciting things to know about. But the important thing we get to is General Order Number 3, which reads as follows. Headquarters District of Texas, Galveston, Texas, June 19th, 1865, General Orders Number 3. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired 
labor. That was made to kind of solve the problem of what were the slaves supposed to do after being freed. And instead of flooding army camps for help, it set up this situation. The orders number three continue saying the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. By order of Major General Granger and F.W. Emery signed it. For the most part, this order is pretty standard for what Sheridan had established for other places, except for the addition of some very important language. Major Frederick Emery wrote and signed General Order Number 3 that announced the emancipation. And he's the one that we're pretty sure included the words, this involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. Absolute equality. Very powerful. No other general orders that historians have found, to my knowledge, issued elsewhere, included that phrase. The words and definitions in the general order about absolute equality were a step above and beyond the message of the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln. And as Sam College said in the interview on the Galveston Unscripted podcast, Juneteenth is important, not just because of its impact on the enslaved, but on how it changed the lives of both the enslaved and the enslavers. Mr. Collins said also that absolute equality did not mean equal results, but it did mean equal opportunity. The 13th Amendment was passed six months later, abolishing slavery forever and making it illegal in the United States. Now, local traditions hold that after General Granger read the general orders at the Osterman building that, as I said, stood at the corner of the Strand and 22nd Street in Galveston. The Union soldiers then marched through Galveston and read it at the 1861 Custom House and Courthouse. Then, tradition holds that they marched to the Black Church on Broadway, now named the Reed Chapel AME Church, and read the order. From what I understand now, and you'll see this claimed in history books, Apparently, this is hard to prove factually. It's tradition. It could have happened. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. But solid historical evidence apparently is lacking. What is certain is that after the orders were issued, they were sent out for publication, which is the way things went. First with the Galveston newspaper. The biggest newspaper at the time in Texas. It was being printed in Houston because of the war at that time. And then it went out across the state for other newspapers to publish. Pamphlets were also printed and dispersed around the state. Slowly, word would have began to spread. And these newspaper printings and pamphlets would have been fondly remembered by freed slaves when they talked about the Freedom Paper or Freedom Papers. As I said, it took a long time for news to spread. Texas is big. And the communication system was pretty poor. Add to that the hatred many owners had towards the idea of emancipation, and it wasn't shocking, and isn't shocking, that it sometimes took months for the enslaved to learn that they were free. In many circumstances, as interviews with former slaves show, 
The owners would gather the slaves together and read from the order of emancipation, explaining what absolute equality meant normally in the process. One former slave, uh, Andrew Goodman from Smith County, recalled later on, he said, quote, When Morris Bob came home, he sent for all the slaves. He was sitting in a yard chair, all tuckered out, shook hands all around, and he was glad to see us. Then he said, I've got something to tell you. You are just as free as I am. You don't belong to nobody but yourselves. We went to war and fought, and the Yankees done whipped us. Morris Bob then went on to add that they were now free and, quote, you can go where you want to go or you can stay here just as you like. He couldn't help but cry, said Mr. Goodman. Unfortunately, some people had to wait to learn of freedom with the arrival of federal troops in their neighborhood. Uh, some enslaved people in the Indian Territory didn't realize until 1866 they were free. And the majority of free peoples did follow the advice in General Order Number 3 to remain where they were and work for wages. But possibly up to 25% did not stay. They were free and left immediately or pretty soon, simply because they could, still having little control over anything or very little in ways of possessions, they at least controlled themselves and where they could go and be Randolph B. Campbell wrote well in his book, Empire for Slavery, about the aftermath of the Declaration. It took time, of course, for Granger's order to become known across the state. Some masters called their slaves together and read the Proclamation of Freedom, but others were slow to obey it. Josie Brown of Woodville, for example, said that slaves on her place worked, quote, a whole year before an official made, quote, the white folks turn us loose. Isabella Boyd remembered, when we all gets free, they's the long time letting us know. Former slaves from other plantations finally convinced them that forced labor had ended. Steve Robertson's mother found out about freedom only by the grapevine, and even then she and her children had to run away in, in order to gain it. Given Texas's territorial expanse, the relatively poor communication system, and the bitter hatred many owners had for Yankees, the experiences of Brown, Boyd, and Robertson were not uncommon. Still, the great majority of the state's bondsmen obtained their freedom before the end of 1865. Most slaves greeted the end of bondage with overwhelming joy that accompanies receiving the answer to a lifelong prayer. As Felix Haywood remembered it, everyone was singing. We was all walking on golden clouds. Hallelujah. According to Lou Lee, a fellow slave on her place called out, Free, free, my Lord. Oh, free, free, my Lord. Free, free, free. Oh, my Lord. In many cases, however, such expressions of joy were not permitted by whites. But the initial threat of violence did not stop Juneteenth from being celebrated. Juneteenth has been celebrated in Texas since 1866 and spread with time to other states. Aside from Juneteenth, it is also being called Freedom Day and Emancipation Day. It is the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. In the years after the war, African Americans gathered to celebrate with parades, prayer picnics, family reunions, songs, and readings of the proclamation. 
Some communities even set aside land known as emancipation parks to observe the celebration. During the middle years of the 20th century, for no surprise, the public celebrations died down and became more private. Commemorations of the event. Gradually, the public celebrations began to come back, and in 1979, the state of Texas did recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday. The defeated Confederates were forced to accept emancipation, but they would do everything they could to keep people from the absolute equality. For a very long time, Jim Crow laws, segregation, the Ku Klux Klan, restrictive voting laws, outright violence, the list goes on and on with the efforts to erect hurdles and barriers to absolute equality. Evidence of this is found in the story of Opal Lee, a social impact leader affectionately known as the grandmother of Juneteenth. She'd been born October 7th, 1926, in the Harrison County city of Marshall. And Marshall and Harrison County had been important political and production areas for the Confederacy during the war, and that area had been developed for cotton plantations. The area had a higher proportion of slaves than any other part of the state. Opal was the oldest of three children, born to Mr. Otis and Mrs. Maddie Flake. Otis Flake was a railroad worker. About her 10th year, the family moved to Fort Worth, farther west, where she attended Cooper Street Elementary School. In June of 1939, when she was 12, her parents bought a house on East Annie Street. And it was mostly a wide neighborhood. And she remembered in an interview with Bud Kennedy that it was a nice house. But the neighbors did not want them to have that nice house. Instead of celebrating Juneteenth, the family faced hatred and destruction. For three days before the 19th, a mob of up to 500 white people gathered in front of the home, throwing rocks and probably saying some things. All of the family was not present on the 19th, having left the house, except for Opal's father. He stayed. It's his home. Ten police units, three highway patrol units, and a sheriff's unit were present and a police report said that they were present but had not mobilized their forces before the raiders entered the house. Where it also said a lieutenant attempted to calm the crowd but could not make himself heard. Some people, Mr. Kennedy reports in the Forward Star Telegram news article about this, said that this is pretty much standard procedure when it involves something like this police presence, but not really any attempt to fix the situation before it got out of hand. Now, when the attackers did invade the house, the police were adamant about warning Mr. Flake not to shoot anyone. Opal remembered later, they tore the house all up, then they set it on fire. She was scared to death, she remembered, through the entire ordeal. You might expect someone that experienced such a terrible act of hate. You'd expect them to be filled with hate and resentment. But instead, it gave Opal Lee another goal. Instead of resent, she was filled with resolve, as Kennedy put in his article. 
she stated in the interview, the fact it happened on the 19th day of June has spurred me to make people understand that Juneteenth is not just a festival. Juneteenth is a day of joy for all America. It's the day we gain true liberty with the arrival of the U.S. Army in Texas to free slaves after Confederate surrender. It should be a unifier. The slaves didn't free themselves. It took all kinds of people, Quakers, abolitionists, to get the slaves free. And she added, we all want the same thing. So why can't we unite and address these disparities that we know exist? After the destruction, after the fire, after the house was gone, the Flake family picked up the pieces of their life and continued. Opal then went on and to attend I Am Terrell High School, Fort Worth's first black school, started in 1882, and she graduated from there in 1943 at the age of 16. Now, her mother wanted her to go to college after graduation. Instead, she got married, had four children, and then divorced after five years. Then, to provide for her children, she went to college and earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree from Wiley College in her hometown of Marshall, and then returned to Fort Worth and taught at Amanda McCoy Elementary School for 15 years. She would work at Convair, which is now Lockheed Martin, to provide more for her children. She then earned a master's degree in counseling and guidance from North Texas State University, which is University of North Texas, and worked as an educator and homeschool counselor for the Fort Worth Independent School District until she retired in about 1976. Now, aside from raising her family, doing her job, Opal Lee was very concerned with Fort Worth community causes. There was a wonderful lady named Lenora Rolla in Fort Worth that was an inspiration to Opal. Mrs. Rolla had been born in Palestine, Texas in 1904. And she did live a very inspirational life as a teacher, a journalist, political activist, community leader, and humanitarian. She was very active during the civil rights process, and she was also very active conserving community history. She, in turn, I discovered, had been mentored and worked with an amazing person named Mary McLeod Bethune, who was born in 1875 and died in 1955. Bethune was the daughter of former slaves, being born then, and became one of the most important black educators civil and women's rights leaders, and government officials of the 20th century. Both of these women are worthy of learning a lot more about. I'm amazed at what I already just discovered, which is why I love doing this podcast and sharing the information I learn. I would share more about them if time permitted, but I've got to move on. I'm going to try to share more about their work and legacy in the future. With that in mind, I would like to bring up one thing about Lenora Roll, something she said that is inspirational to me. During the 1980s, Rolla would go to local schools and churches and educate the children about misconceptions about the role of African Americans in United States history. History is very important to her. It had meaning 
great value as it does to, I hope, for most of you and it does for me. And according to her, quote, there's no such thing as black history in the United States of America. We have only one history, American history. But she did add this next statement. And if we taught American history, there'd be no need for me to sit up here. I take that as pretty inspirational words there. And Opal Lee carried on both women's legacy with her work. She was interested in preserving local black history, and she was involved with helping Lenora Rolla found the Tarrant County Black Historical and Genealogical Society, 1974. Opal also was involved helping organize Fort Worth's annual Juneteenth celebrations, and was active in supporting political candidates she believed in. In addition to this, in the 1980s, Opal Lee started leading an annual bus tour for Fort Worth city leaders to take them into the city's economically depressed areas and show them important Fort Worth historic landmarks in these areas that deserved attention and protection, if possible, in Fort Worth's minority communities. And in 1994, she launched a nonprofit organization named Unity Unlimited, where she promotes her message of unity In addition to all this, she also helped found Citizens Concerned with Human Dignity, an organization with the goal of assisting the economically disadvantaged in finding housing in Fort Worth. She volunteered at Habitat for Humanity, became a member of the board, served on the Habitat's Land Acquisition Board. She also served on the Historic and Cultural Landmarks Commission, the AIDS Outreach Commission, Evans Avenue Business Association, the Good Samaritans, and Riverside Neighborhood Advisory Council. And recently, Opal Lee is also a founding member of Transform 1012 North Main Street. It is a coalition of Fort Worth nonprofit and arts organizations that was created in 2019 to work to turn a former Ku Klux Klan auditorium into the Fred Rouse Center, a museum for arts and community healing. And the good news is that apparently the group did acquire the building in January of 2022. Busy, busy, busy working. Working for good. She served as a precinct chair for District 8 for over 30 years. She's a member of Grandmother's Club, Ethel Ransom Humanitarian and Cultural Club. She's also active in her church, Baker Chapel AME, where she serves as a teacher, assistant teacher and deaconess. And on top of all this, she's campaigned for recognition of Juneteenth for decades. Now, back, way back, Representative Robert Edwards, he introduced a bill to recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday way back in 1879. It did not make any progress. And it'd be another hundred years later uh, when Texas recognized the date of Juneteenth for its importance. And the efforts of Representative Al Edwards and others helped lead Texas to recognize it in 1979, just after she had retired. She also served as a board member for the National Juneteenth Observance Foundation, which formed in 1994. She was determined to see Juneteenth made into a national holiday. 
by working to make Congress and the administration aware about what the country needed. The country needs unity and that celebrating the abolition of slavery can bring unity. She believes this. She believed that the national relevance of celebrating freedom all across America is bigger than just Texas. And she began leading two-and-a-half-mile walks every year for Juneteenth. The two-and-a-half miles represented the two-and-a-half years it took for news of her emancipation to reach Texas. Then, when she was 89 years old, she made a symbolic walk from Fort Worth, Texas, to Washington, D.C. She started in September 2016, and she finally reached the Capitol in January 2017. She didn't just stop there. She's marched in Fort Smith and Little Rock, Arkansas, Las Vegas, Nevada, Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Atlanta, Georgia, Selma, Alabama, and in the Carolinas. And then she also launched a petition for Juneteenth to become a federal holiday at the website change.org. It grew slowly to about 8,000 signatures from what I understand. And then after the 2000 unrest and turmoil, it gained and grew to over 1.6 million signatures so that it got noticed. And then on June 17th, 2021, at the age of 94 years old, Opal Lee was present in Washington, D.C. when Congress passed the bill to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. And she was a guest of honor at the ceremony when President Biden signed the bill. And she received a pin, and she also received a standing ovation. The Dallas Morning News named her the Texan of the Year in 2021. And that shows the power of perseverance, positivity, Preaching unity, hard work, caring for others, caring for community, being active, staying active. Opal Lee is indeed a Texas hero and an inspiration. And she also is a symbol of the meaning of Juneteenth. Now, in a previous episode, I said that I wish there had been something at the site a little bit more significant to commemorate the importance of Juneteenth announcement of General Order Number 3. That I said because at the time I went, it was a parking lot. It still is a parking lot from as of the time I'm recording this. But when I said that, I hadn't been recently. And today there is an amazing work of art at the site on the building next to the parking lot. The man I mentioned earlier, Sam Collins III, along with other Galveston residents, made it happen. By promoting unity and the love of history, sharing history, education. It's very special. There's an app when you go there. You can interact with the mural. Apparently, I'm looking forward to going to visit it. It's called the Absolute Equality Mural. You see the theme of this of this episode all goes back to that. And Juneteenth remains a celebration of freedom and strength, perseverance and triumph of the human spirit as does the life of Opal Lee and countless other resilient people who have worked to bring our countries forward and together. Now, I want to close with some words that I heard Sam Collins III share on the Galveston Unscripted podcast. and I don't think he'd mind me sharing it. I hope not. I have not had the opportunity to talk to him. But 
In it, he says, Juneteenth celebrates the evolution of our country into a more perfect union. It was not perfect in 1528, 1619, 1776, 1865, 2020, 2021, or even today. We're not a perfect union, but hopefully we're moving towards that more perfect union in which we will see absolute equality, in which every individual will have an equal opportunity to develop and become their very best self without hurdles or barriers being placed in front of them to to hinder their growth or development. As we become better individuals, we become better families, better neighborhoods, better communities, better cities, counties, states, country, and hopefully a better world. That's just a brilliant statement. Uh, Leaders like Sam Collins and Opal Lee are inspirational. And I think that's going to be the last word for today. Happy Juneteenth, if you're listening on Juneteenth when I release this. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then I'm going to come back with some closing statements and uh, close out the show. All right, I want to thank everybody for listening. It's a fun episode to do. I love learning, and I learned a lot. And I, I like I said, I owe a lot to... Judge Ken Wise and the interviews he conducted with Ed T. Cotham, who is an author on probably the most scholarly book on Juneteenth. Look for it and his other works. Sam Collins III is a community leader in Galveston area who, just listening to him talk, I think I could listen to him every day. I wish he'd start his own podcast where he talked about anything he was interested in. Very informative, very educational, hearing him talk on both Judge Wise's podcast, as well as J.R. Shaw's amazing podcast, Galveston Unscripted, where he also did a great interview about Sam Collins III. I learned a lot. I recommend that you go and listen to all three episodes because I barely touched on the greatness that they conveyed in theirs. They inspired me to put together this timeline and story that I learned. I, I, that's the reason I do the podcast, like I said, is to learn and to share what I learn. I don't have an agenda other than the love of history, and I like finding stories like this that are sometimes inspirational. It's not always that way. So thanks to JR and, and Judge Judge Wise for their work. I admire what they've been doing or will do in the future. I also uh, want to thank Ed Cotham and Sam Collins for the work that they do great value in in all of their efforts and if you get a chance to go to Galveston definitely go by and see the work that's been done at the site i hope that pop, that uh that parking lot someday is not a parking lot and that they can add something even more than a parking lot where general order number 3 was shared we're going to end the show with a song by Peyton Matus before that, I'll say, yes, Derek McClendon did do the amazing theme music for Texas History Lessons. I'm always indebted to him for that. Please go check out his last, most recent album, Interstate Daydreamer. It's it's a definitely a wonderful piece of art. I love listening to all the songs on it. Some really beautiful work there. And Peyton Matus, he's also put out an EP and a single uh, since the last time I did an episode called Heathens in Heaven. Great songs, great talent. Um... I, I love listening to her music, and so go give them a listen. But until then, 
I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank my Patreon supporters for helping me with the show. I want to thank people that have donated through give, buy me a cup of coffee uh, that have helped. I use those donations for buying books. I've got a stack. I should do an episode just on the books I've acquired recently, thanks to the help people have given me. And until next time, take care of yourself, take care of each other, be kind. Adios. There's prayers I sing to a lesser God who loves lost kids. Never grew up and she sings to me. The lights are off and I swear undying devotion. On a no guitar that's out of tune from my grandpa. I turned 22 and I saw her eyes. Light of June, and I had my first epiphany. Now, these prayers I've seen to lesser God, they sound like jazz. The oven on, baptized in a slow dance song, right after a bottle of Chardonnay. The sacred rite in a two-bedroom Well, it smells of oak Your perfume and the scriptures Are written in the margins of a cookbook From the thrift store Now these prayers I sing To a lesser God She sings back to me Left in awe that the most divine would harmonize With the likes of such a sinner As the congregations bowed their heads And prayed like transcendentalists I turned my eyes up to the skies And the heavens stood wide open Swore undying devotion Swore undying devotion There's prayers I sing Lesser God who loves lost kids Never grew up and she sings to me When the lights are off and I swear undying devotion Swear undying devotion